I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you're going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in the land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the, drop, on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, then take care of less your for take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him, him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the, to, to the test, as you tested him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and statutes which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that, he may, that it may go well with you, and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting all of your enemies from before you, as the Lord has promised. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against, G against Egypt and Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us, in, bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God, for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all of this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. This is the word of God. We're going to continue our series today in Deuteronomy. And as we said last week, the way we need to understand Deuteronomy is to recognize, first of all, that this book is a treaty. It is a covenant between God, who is the king of the universe, and Israel, who are his people. 
the people that he is, is the Lord of. And the setting of this book is that uh, Moses is standing in front of the people who have been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, and now they are finally at the edge of the promised land. Now they are just about to enter. And so the contract, the treaty, it opens up with this reminder. It opens up with a reminder of all the wonderful things that God has done for them and all of the things that have taken place to lead up to this moment. And now we are entering into the bulk of the book, the main section of Deuteronomy, which is also the main section of this treaty. It's what you would call the stipulations of the treaty. It is the requirements of this relationship between God the King and his people. It is the section of Deuteronomy that tells the people of Israel how they are supposed to live in a country where God is their king. And today we're going to look at the first one. The very first of those stipulations. It's the one that we just read. That you shall have no other gods before me. And our hope this fall is to get our way, get all the way through all 34 chapters of the book of Deuteronomy. But we don't have 34 weeks to do that. And so the way we have broken down this book is we are taking each one of these Ten Commandments and then connecting it to the large chunks of Deuteronomy that explain those commandments practically. And so this week we're looking at the first commandment and we're looking at Deuteronomy chapter 6 that lays out what it looks like to have no other gods before him. And so to to address that this morning, to understand that this morning, we're going to take a very simple approach. We're going to ask three very simple questions. One, what does this first commandment really mean? What does it mean for us to have no other gods before him? And then two... What will our lives look like when we are keeping this command? And then third, how will we ever do this? So what does this commandment mean? What will our lives look like when we're keeping it? And then finally, how are we going to do it? How is that possible? So let's start there. What does this commandment really mean? Uh, Whenever we open up the the Bible and and look at the law, especially when we look at the Ten Commandments... uh, we, we start to feel a little bit burdened. We, we realize we're looking at a set of rules, a set of instructions. These are uh, commandments on how we are supposed to live. And, and in our society especially, we, we come to the law and we feel like it is constraining. We, we, we believe that laws by their nature are limiting to us. If it weren't for some person, right, or some government or some organization that is forcing their rules down our throats, then we would be free. We would be free to be who we want to be and live how we want to live, but it's the rules that are the problem. That is the wrong way for us to consider the Ten Commandments. Because at the core, the Ten Commandments are meant to describe a life of freedom. The Ten Commandments are meant to describe to us a life of freedom from slavery, right? Do you remember this from last week? The preface to the Ten Commandments says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And now that you're out of Egypt, 
Now that you have been freed from slavery, now that me, the holy and righteous and perfect God is your king and not Pharaoh, now that you are no longer slaves, you are free to do what you were always meant to do. You are free to be who you were made to be. You are free now to worship. That's why James, in the New Testament, when he talks about the law, he calls the law the law of liberty, the law of freedom. He he recognizes this. He recognizes that it's only when we have been brought into a relationship with the living God, only when we know him as our king, only then are we free to really live. You know, this, that, that principle is, is, shows up in a lot of places. It actually shows up, I think, pretty clearly in uh, the first Avengers movie. Did you guys see that one? I know it's, it's been a few years now, amazingly. That movie's a few years old. But it's, you know, Avengers. It's a superhero movie. And in that movie, Loki is the bad guy. And he's kind of like a god, but he's also kind of like a supervillain. And he comes down to earth, and he's powerful, and he's terrifying, and he has this big mighty, I don't know what it is, some golden rod of some sort. And he, he slams it down, and he tells the whole world to kneel before him. And all the people get down, and they start to cower. And he gives them the speech. He says, the unspoken truth of humanity is that you crave subjugation. You were made to be ruled. And in the end, you will always kneel. And then Captain America shows up and like punches him in the face or something. I don't know. But it's funny because when he says that, there's actually some truth in his words. He's, there's some truth to what he says. It is impossible for us to really be free. It is impossible for us as human beings to live a truly autonomous life. Because in the end, we will always kneel. In the end, there will always be someone or something that we look to to give our life an ultimate sense of meaning. To give our life an ultimate sense of purpose. We will always serve something bigger than ourselves. And in this commandment, in the first commandment, God tells us that if that thing is anything other than him, if the one we serve is anything other than him, then our lives, they won't work. Maybe you know that, right? Maybe you think of those obvious ones, money, sex, and power. And you know those things can't be your God, right? The Beatles told us money can't buy us love. We know that. But it's other things. It's anything. It can be good things. If we live our life for good causes, if we live our life to make a difference in the world, even then we will never be free. Because our identity and our security is going to be based in something we can never be sure of. But this commandment begins with a certainty. This first commandment begins with a promise that we can rest in. It begins by saying, I am the Lord your God who has brought you out of slavery. And now that you're free, you shall have no other gods before me. Now let's be clear about that. When God says, no other gods before me, 
He is not simply saying, I want to be your first priority. God isn't saying, oh, you can have some other gods. That's fine. Just as long as I'm the first God. That's not the point. The whole thing we've been talking about, this is a covenant relationship. And we know how those relationships work. Marriage, that's a a modern day covenant relationship. Imagine if, if I came home this week and I said to Melissa, you know, honey, think about adding a few wives into the mix. <laughs> you know, just three or four. Spice things up a little. I don't think Melissa's response would be, well, okay, as long as I'm the first. <laughs> as long as there are no other wives before me. No, of course she wouldn't say that. She would say, I better not ever see you with another woman. <laughs> We're in a covenant. When God says no other gods before me, he means no other gods in my presence. No other gods before my face. And because God's presence is everywhere all the time, that means no other gods ever. We should never lift another thing above him in our lives. Now, of course, it's not a perfect analogy, right? Because God doesn't need our love. God is not insecure about our love the way we, a husband and wife would be, right? God doesn't need our love the way I need Melissa's love and faithfulness. God is self-sufficient. It's the pagan gods that were not self-sufficient. Maybe you've read some of those stories, maybe you heard about it in history, the way pagan gods were worshipped, where they would go and they would sacrifice animals to them and they would burn the animals and the smell would rise up into the air and they believed That they had to do that because that was how the gods were fed. And if you didn't do enough of those things, the gods would be angry because they needed the people to feed them. But God is not like that. In fact, God tells us he is completely the opposite of that in Psalm 50. He says, if I were hungry, I would not tell you. Because the world and all of its fullness are mine. That means that God doesn't demand our loyalty because he needs it. God doesn't say, no other gods before me because there is some deficiency in him. He says, no other gods because we need it. We were made to worship God alone. And when we don't do that, our lives are a mess. We were made to live for his glory and his glory only. And when we don't do that, things fall apart. This command is the first commandment for a good reason. Because this is the commandment that all the other commandments rest on. All the other sins that get listed in the rest of these commandments come out of a failure to do the first thing. Just think about it. You know, I, I, was, I was joking with Chad, actually, that when I write sermons, um, I always write at the top of the page, you know, what's the sin issue here? What's the thing that we need to, to change based on this text? And honestly, with this passage, the answer is all of them. All the sins are the issue here. If you steal... It's because you've broken the first commandment. It's because you believe that 
acquiring some object is the most important thing in your life. And that if you have that, that will satisfy you. If you commit adultery, it's because you believe the pleasure that you get from that act or the companionship that you get from that person is what you need more than God. If you break the Sabbath, it's because you believe that your priorities are more important and what you need more than God's worship, more than His commands. That's why when we get to Deuteronomy 6... And Moses starts to explain to us what a life looks like where we are living out the first commandment. It's not just a list of do's and don'ts. Because the list would go on forever. It's not just a description of the things we're supposed to avoid or a prohibition of certain actions. But it is a call into fullness. Deuteronomy 6 calls us to do what we were made for. And it's one of the greatest verses in all of Scripture. Deuteronomy 6, 4, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. That commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind, that's a call for us to respond to reality. It's a call for us to do what we were created for. God is one. There is only one God. And those who have been set free by Him should worship Him alone. That's what it means. That is what the first commandment really means. There's one God and we should worship Him alone. But secondly, what does that look like? What does a life of obedience look like? What does it look like to keep that command? Hear, O Israel. That line, that verse is called the Shema. Because the Hebrew word for hear, O Israel, is Shema. And they are some of the most important words in all of Scripture. Especially for the worship in Israel. Those words were regularly recited to call people to worship. And it's really beautiful, right? Right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. It sounds good. It sounds nice. But I worry it sounds a little too beautiful to us. I worry that when we hear the word, love the Lord your God, we we don't understand what the scripture is telling us to do. Because we don't use the word love the way the Bible uses it. As a pastor, a lot of times I get to do... Weddings. And whenever we do weddings, we do premarital counseling. And, and during premarital counseling, we cover all sorts of things, but we always look at the vows, the promises that you're going to make. And in those traditional wedding vows, there is a vow that we are going to love and cherish our spouse. And I find a lot of times that, that couples don't understand what that means. That they think those are just synonyms. That it's a redundant thing that we love and cherish. And and that that is a promise that we're going to have nice feelings about our spouse. That that when we see them, we're going to have butterflies on our stomach all the time. But that's not what it means. Of course it's not what it means. Because, well, think about what follows. In sickness and in health. 
in, for better or for worse. The call to love is a commitment to serve even when you don't feel like it. The call to love is a call to put your spouse as your priority even when you don't want to. Even when they're sick, even when you're angry at them, even when things aren't going well. It's a call to love when you don't feel like it. I mean, think about this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. The simple fact that it could be commanded should tell us it's not just an emotion. The love that Deuteronomy is calling us to is an action. It's a commitment to God that then leads to a certain way of life. He repeats it in chapter 11. He says, You shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always. Love is about action, not just some emotion. But it doesn't stop there. He says, not only should we love the Lord our God with all our heart, but we should also love him with all our soul and all our strength. That word soul is is a really interesting word because it's this Hebrew word, nephesh. And it's more than what we think about as our soul. The word soul is our whole selves, the, the deepest roots of who we are. It's our inner being. Catherine just sang that song about blessing the Lord, O my soul. That comes from Psalm 103. It says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. That's the idea of the soul. Everything that is in us. He's saying it's, it's not a, love is an action, but it's not just an action. Loving God is not just about doing some good deeds. That's what the Pharisees did. Remember them in the New Testament? The people who kept all the rules, but Jesus was the harshest critic for them. He compared the Pharisees to whitewashed tombs. These graves that were beautiful to look at on the outside, but on the inside, they were full of dead men's bones. It's not just about obedience. It's it's about our whole selves. Christopher Wright, he says... One of these uh, scholars that, that we're reading together, it says, to love God with all your heart and with all your soul means that you love him with your whole self, with your rationality, with your mental capacity, with your moral choices, but also with your feelings, with your desires, and with the deepest roots of your life. And then the last thing he says, we should love God with all our strength. And literally that word is with all of our very muchness. The call to have no other gods. To love God is a call to absolute surrender. It's a call to love God with everything that you are. And even maybe more than all that you are. To total excess. Loving God, it's not a feeling. It is a life of service. But it's not just actions. It is something that must define us. Loving God must define who we are as people. And I know even that, though, it sounds abstract. 
It sounds big, it sounds heavy, but it doesn't, it's not exactly clear. What does it mean, though? How do we do that? Well, in our tradition, we have the Westminster Confession. And the Westminster Confession has a list of questions and answers that go along with it that help us understand the Ten Commandments. And if you have access to the internet, you should go try to find it this week and read through it because it's, it's pretty amazing. And in there, there is a question, what does God forbid in the first commandment? And the first part of that answer, what does God forbid in the first commandment? The first part is kind of obvious. He says he forbids atheism, denying the existence of God. He forbids idolatry, worshiping anything else besides God, right? Those are the obvious ones. We, we could gather that much. But then it goes on and it says it forbids self-love. It forbids self-seeking unbelief, misbelief, bad ideas about God or failure to learn about God. It forbids distrust, despair. It forbids hardness of heart and pride. It forbids impatience with God. It forbids lukewarmness and deadness in the things of God. How does it sound now? How does that list strike you? When I hear that, man, that, that cuts me to the heart. And the truth is, that's not even a third of the list. The answer to that question fills up a whole page. But the point is this. A life of obedience to the first commandment is a life that pursues the knowledge of God with passion and energy. It's a life that makes God not just our highest priority, but it's seeing that our whole life belongs to Him and can be used up at His discretion. When God says, no other gods before me, He means that our goal and our purpose in life should be to glorify Him in everything we do, with everything that we are. But how do we do that? Realistically, how do we do that? It seems like a lot, doesn't it? It actually brings me back again to that Avengers scene. Because I think we're right to feel burdened by this command. It it is a lot. But that is naturally what we do with our God. We always love our gods this way. The problem is, the thing we worship for most of us is not the real God. That thing that we always sacrifice a little extra for. That thing that we spend our life dreaming about and pursuing and and meditating on. That thing that we want more than anything else. That thing that gives our life a sense of meaning and purpose is not the real God. It's something else. And so when the real God shows up, when Yahweh shows up and He demands that we love Him with all our heart and soul and mind and strength, it feels like a burden. And that's that's what makes us unique. 
That's what makes us unique in all of creation. Do you know that? In all of creation, human beings are unique because we have the choice to not glorify God. I heard a pastor say once that a dog in all its dogness glorifies God. Any dog people here? Yeah. I had a dog growing up. His name was Nipper. He's a good dog. He was a dog that glorified God. You know how he glorified God? Well, he ran around. And he sniffed other dogs' butts. And he, he barked at strangers. <laughs> he did dog stuff. He did what a dog was supposed to do. And because of that, he glorified God. But because of our sin nature... We alone are capable of living lives that will not glorify God. Because we were made to love him with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our strength. That's our purpose. Now, of course, we were made to do people things. We were made to, to, to work in jobs and maybe have children. We were made to, to enjoy each other's company. But we were made to do that in service of God's glory, with a full heart pointed towards Him. And we don't. Instead of serving God, we serve our own ends. Or, if we do serve Him, we serve Him as a second or a third or a tenth priority in our life. And we try to pass that off as obedience. We try to pass that off as faithfulness to this command. But God tells us here that if we live that way, we are just as guilty of breaking the first commandment as someone who curses his name and denies his existence. Do you remember Revelation 3? He says, Would that you were either hot or cold, but because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. We live lives that don't glorify God. We don't do what we were made for. We don't do the one thing that we were made for. And we wonder why our lives feel incomplete. We wonder why we are stressed out and anxious. We wonder why our hearts never feel satisfied. We don't do what we were made for. And I think we should just sit here for a moment and think about this. You should have no other gods before me. I think we should look at that commandment and see what it really means. Know just how heavy that command is because we need to recognize that in this room there is not a single righteous person. There is not a single righteous person on the face of this earth before this command. And yet, this is what God requires. And yet, this is what God said we have to do if we want to stand in his presence. 
God has told us that those who do not do this are destined for judgment. So what, what then? What hope is there for anybody? Well, if you're asking that question, you're in the right place. If you're asking that question, Deuteronomy speaks straight to us. Verse 20, it says, When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? He says, someday in the distant future, when your children come to you and they're studying these rules and they start to realize what's involved and they say, what is the meaning of all this? What are we supposed to do with all this? Here's how Moses says we should respond. Then you shall say to your son, you shall say to your children, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in And give us a land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes. To fear the Lord our God for our good always. That he might preserve us alive as we are this day. He says when your children come to you and they ask you about these commandments. What they mean and how we're supposed to keep them. He says don't answer them with theology. Don't open up the textbook, but instead he says, tell them a story. Tell them the story of God's faithfulness for his people. Tell them the story of God's desire to deliver you and keep you alive. Today, we are these children. We are these generations years and years later, that now come to this text and we are asking those questions. We're the ones who say, what hope is there for any of us to keep these rules? And God has answered us. And he's answered us with a story. He's answered us with the story of the gospel. The story that tells us that the same God who told us that we should love him with all that we are, not by a feeling, but with our actions... That God has shown us what perfect love looks like. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. Jesus was God in the flesh. The God who in the Old Testament said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. In the New Testament said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. Jesus was that one God come to earth in the flesh. But instead of coming to punish us, instead of coming to wipe us out because we have broken this commandment, instead of wiping us out for our inability to love him, he loved us with everything that he had. He loved us with all of his heart. And with all of his soul, he loved us exceedingly more than we could ever love. On the cross, he took the punishment that we had earned. On the cross, Jesus took the punishment for our lukewarmness. He took the punishment for our unbelief. He took the punishment for our pride. He gave his very life for you. 
Our God is the one who did this. Our God is the one who has loved us with all of his heart and soul and strength. Through Christ, he loved you to death to free you from death. He loved you to death so that you could finally live. The gospel tells us that he has set us free from the penalty of sin so that now we can finally do what we were made to do. Now we can finally do what we were made to do. Now we can finally glorify God. So let me ask you this. How are you going to respond to that? How are you going to respond to that story this morning? Will you accept his sacrifice? Will you come to him today in repentance and faith? Will you accept the gift of freedom and will you live as free men and women? Will you live a life to glorify him at your home and in your workplace and in your, in your school? Or will you bow down to another God? Will you bow down to one of these lesser gods who aren't really gods at all? Will you bow down to these gods who will surely kill you in the end? Well, my hope is this. If you see Jesus this morning, there's only one choice you can possibly make. If you believe this gospel this morning, there's only one response that you could really genuinely have. And that's to give yourself to him. To immerse yourself in his good news. To do what God told us to do. To write it on our hands and on our hearts and on our doorposts. To pound it into our brains. To talk about the gospel in our homes and in the streets. And when our children come to ask us what we believe. When the next generation comes to ask us questions. Not simply to recite the rules. But to tell them the story. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery. You should have no other gods before me. Let's pray. Father, we are... It's impossible for us to get to the end of this law in 30 minutes. It's impossible for us to do the work that we need to do, to do the repentance that we need to do. Our hearts are wrapped up in so many wicked things. We serve you half-heartedly or we don't serve you at all. But Lord, we thank you this morning for Jesus who has served you perfectly on our behalf. And Lord, I want to pray for anyone who comes here this morning and has not trusted in you for salvation. Lord, I want to ask that they would come, that they would believe and that they would bow. And I pray for all of us weak and wounded and weary sinners who recognize that once again we have wandered off. Once again we have lost our way. Lord, I pray that they would remember that they are welcome at this table, not because of themselves, but because of you. I pray that they would come. I pray that you would transform us. I pray that you would make us people who keep the first commandment. Pray it in Christ's name. Amen.